Good morning, everybody. My name is Kelly Grew, and I'm a CFP with the Wealth Management Division here at AAFCPAs. Uh, CFP is a certified financial planner. As part of that team, I help advise nonprofits, plan sponsors, foundations, and high net worth individuals and families. And I'm Dave Alani. I'm the Managing Director of AFCPA's Employee Benefit Plan Practice. And we audit and consult with over 140 benefit plans annually. Um, in today's session, we're going to go ahead and uh, give you some best practices for understanding and monitoring your plan fees. Um, just before we get started, a little bit of audience participation. Um, how many of you in this room are plan fiduciaries? Just raise your hands if you might. All right, a few folks there, which is good. Good to know you know you're a plan fiduciary. Um, <laughs> how many of your organizations have a retirement plan? Okay. okay, very good. And now finally, by a show of hands, how many of you are participants in your employee plan sponsor? Yeah, that's great. All of us. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, what, what we're going to cover today and, and what, what you'll find is that not only are your plan expenses important as a plan sponsor and as a plan fiduciary, but plan expenses affect everyone, even an individual. It's going to affect your individual retirement balance, what you're going to have available to you when you retire, what you have for earning power in your retirement plan account. And so it's important not only as understanding what your responsibilities around the plan are, but also your effect individually. So some of you may recall last year I did a presentation on um, fiduciary responsibilities. So what, what are fiduciary's responsibilities to the plan? How do you make sure you're mini uh, minimizing your risk? And you, you might recall this visual representation we have up here as to what are the six, six components that you really need to understand as a plan fiduciary. You've got to set policies and understand uh, what, are, what are the ways that you're going to go ahead and monitor your responsibilities. Um, what are the responsibilities under ERISA? What risks are there? Uh, what are the rules and regulations? And if you look at the bottom of this, this visual uh, slide here, you can see plan expenses is a key piece of your fiduciary responsibility. You've got to only pay reasonable plan expenses. So we're going to talk a little bit about today is what are reasonable plan expenses? How do you determine what your expenses are? And then what is the impact and how are you going to monitor those plan expenses? Because um, it's not always transparent. A lot of cases, and, and Kelly's going to get into it, is these, these fees are really buried. You can't see them. They don't show up on your statement. And understanding what you're paying and who you're paying it to can sometimes be, be challenging. And we're going to walk through a handful of steps. Um, you know, so, so one, you know, gathering the information in order to make this assessment and monitor those fees. So who are we paying? How are they getting paid? What are the options for paying? Because a lot of times uh, fiduciaries real, don't realize there's more than one method in which you can pay your providers, your record keepers, your advisors, et cetera. It doesn't, you're not sort of painted into a box with your retirement plan, so there are options there. Making sure you're communicating to your participants. They have a right to know what their plan expenses are and how they're being calculated, what's being charged to each participant, and then how you're going to monitor uh, monitor and document is, is the next big key piece to this, is making sure you've got a good uh, mechanism in place to monitor and document the decisions you're making as to why those fees are reasonable. So the first step in understanding how much your plan actually truly costs is to understand the difference between direct costs and indirect costs. 
So direct costs are the most transparent type of costs in a retirement plan because they're normally stated on some sort of invoice. For example, the quarterly amount that you pay to your record keeper to uh, do the testing, prepare the 5500 form, and file it for you, maybe even create the plan document with the types of features that you want. Another form of direct cost is anything that's paid for by the participants. So an example of that would be if your plan allows for loans, there's normally an administrative cost to administer that loan. It's deducted from the participants' accounts and then it shows up on the custodial statement at the end of the month. So it's very transparent, it's very clear. Indirect costs, on the other hand, are costs that accumulate through the plan's investments. Specifically, I'm talking about expense ratios. So an expense ratio is a fee charged to a participant in order to buy into a mutual fund. And it's stated as an annual percent paid per year. So in other words, if you have $100,000 to invest in a mutual fund that charges a 1% expense ratio, then immediately your $100,000 gets reduced to 99,000 and a $1,000 fee is collected. Revenue sharing is the process by which all of those fees are collected and a portion of it goes to the mutual fund company, but then another portion gets sent back to the plan to help pay for some of the service providers. So who can be paid by revenue sharing? Well, it can be any of these service providers that are listed on the slide. And in fact, there may be some instances where there's enough revenue being generated by the plan's investments that all of these service providers are paid for. And you never get that quarterly invoice. It might even appear like your plan is free. <laughs> if there is one takeaway from today, please let it be that there is no such thing as a free plan. There is always a cost. It's just a matter of who is paying for it and how. So is revenue sharing a bad practice? Well, like with anything, you gotta consider how much you're paying and what you're getting for what you're paying. But there are a few questions that you should be asking yourself. If there's always a surplus of revenue at the end of the quarter or at the end of the year, what are you doing with that surplus? Are you allowing it to just continue growing so it's a credit against your invoice every quarter? Are you sending it back to the participants? Are you hiring your advisor to come in and do educational seminars for the employees? What are you doing with that surplus if there is one? Another question to ask yourself is, would you be able to offer this benefit to your employees if you had to pay for it out of pocket? And maybe the answer is no. And maybe you need to share in the cost with your, your participants. And so it makes sense. And then finally, and this is really a question for maybe your TPA or your record keeper, but do they do fee levelization or fee equalization? And I'll take a step back and explain that a little bit. So not all mutual funds charge the same expense ratios. There's very expensive mutual funds and there's cheap mutual funds. You could have a participant with a lot of money buying into a very expensive mutual fund and covering the majority of the costs of the, of the, of the plan. Fee levelization is a formula by which record keepers or TPAs can use to make sure that they level the playing field among the participants and so that they equally share in the cost of the plan. So the only way to know if you're paying too much 
is to actually calculate and benchmark it. So in a survey of 4,000 employers covering a wide range of industries, 54% actually calculated and benchmarked their fees. 27 calculated their fees, but they didn't actually benchmark them against anything. And almost 20% didn't calculate their fees at all. Yeah, this is, I mean, a telling, telling figure, because if you think about it, nearly half of plan sponsors aren't meeting their responsibility. They're not evaluating what their plan expenses are. They have no clue if they're reasonable or not. And one in five employers doesn't even know what they're paying. They might think it's free. They might, they just have no clue. They haven't taken the time to evaluate it. And that's a significant risk to the organization and the fiduciary individually um, because they, they haven't met that responsibility to know that they're paying only reasonable fees. And it's affecting every single participant in the plan. Right, so what should you aim for? Well, it depends. It depends on the size of your plan and it depends on how many participants you have. But let's just do an example. Let's say that you have five million in assets under management and you have 100 participants. Well, according to the benchmark study, you should be paying about 125 basis points for a total bundled package. And, and that includes everything. That's all in. So in, in order for you to really compare apples to apples, this would include your advisor fee, it would include your record keeping fee, a third party administrative fee. Um, different plans are designed in different ways, but the, the real way to sort of have a benchmark that you can compare is to take the total all in cost of my plan, the 125 basis points is the benchmark, what am I paying all in? And you can divvy up that pie how you decide. If you've got 125 basis points and that's what you're expecting your plan expenses to be, you can decide to pay more to an advisor or more to an administrator or have a different record keeper because you like certain platforms or offerings that they may have. You have the discretion to make those decisions within that uh, amount of spending. Right. So let's say you were asleep at the wheel and you haven't been calculating your fees, okay? So you go home tonight and you say, I'm gonna do a little math or I'm gonna call my advisor and I'm gonna have them tell me how much we're paying. So let's use that $5 million example again. You find out you're paying 200 basis points. Well, that's only 75 basis points more than where you should be according to the benchmark. So what kind of impact does that have on your participants' retirement accounts? In one year, your participants end up paying $37,500 more. In 10 years, if we stretch this out and we grow the assets in the plan by 6% a year, your participants end up paying almost $500,000 more. For some of these participants, their 401k or their 403b plan is the only retirement savings that they have. So 75 basis points makes a big difference. And, and that's a great point, Kelly, because in case that last slide didn't sort of drive home what we're trying to get at, let's bring this down to an individual level. So many of you in the room are CFOs and CEOs. Um, let's look at this example. Uh, if you've got an account balance in your retirement plan of $500,000 and the difference in the two uh, fee allocations, whether it be the benchmark of 125 basis points and you're paying 200 basis points, the impact to you as an individual each year is uh, $3,700 and compound over 10 years is $50,000.
And that's a significant amount of money. That's a lot of trips to Bermuda or you know, coffee and newspapers, whatever it is you're gonna do in retirement. That's a significant impact to you individually in this room to make sure that those planned fees are reasonable and you're getting bang for your buck in, in what you're, what you're, uh, who you're engaging with and, and who you're using within your plan. And not to mention, that's a cost per year, but that money could have been invested with that's the rest right. of the money and growing. So there's actually an opportunity cost that's not being represented as well. So to really tie this all together, um, you know, you're thinking, what, what are my next steps? What can I do? And most frequently what we find is that organizations and plan sponsors, fiduciaries, don't have what we call a fee policy statement. Fee policy statement is really a mechanism for you to sit down, evaluate, and have, have a structure of how you're gonna compile your fees, who's gonna compile those fees, how often you're gonna do it, how often you're gonna benchmark it. So that way it holds the plan sponsor and the fiduciaries accountable to say this is how we're going to uh, make sure we're evaluating these consistently and we're, and we're doing it in accordance with the industry standards on an ongoing basis, and we're taking care of the plan, we're doing what we're supposed to do, and we're taking care of our plan participants. I think when I look at this, really the piece, and, and you probably see this a lot working with individuals and plans, you really have to take an interest in the plan participants and make sure you're doing what's best for them. Okay, we have a couple minutes for questions, so if anybody has any questions now, we're happy to take them. Uh, if not, Kelly and I will be available at lunch during the breaks and at the cocktail reception. The question is, what is the risk to the fiduciaries if they haven't been monitoring these fees and maybe you've been overpaying? You know, what we've been seeing in the industry and has been for some very public lawsuits where large organizations, some universities have been sued. It's been class action lawsuits where participants have brought forth lawsuits against the organization for not monitoring those fees. And it really has had a significant impact when they compound it and look at the, the life of, of the plan. And so there's been a lot of very high profile case. That's the risk. The other risk is also to individuals who are fiduciaries. They are personally liable and at risk. So those are the, the two main, main items. But there are penalties and possible lost earnings that the employer would have to rest, uh, make restitution to the plan for to make the participants whole. If the plan provider provides a compliance document, so all of your participants are getting the information, but on subsequent review you find the amount too high, what are the challenges that a fiduciary should be looking at? You know, so it's disclosed to the participant because it's a part of yeah. a 350-page document, but it is unreasonably high. So, so if, if you're doing this analysis, and, and Kelly and I have worked with a couple of clients where we've, we've gone through and we've done these analysis and we've found you know, areas where they could improve. You know, the biggest thing that you can do is correct it going forward. So if you haven't been evaluating the investment options that you have in the plan, which I think is, is probably the, the biggest, the most egregious area is when you have funds in your plan and you don't realize how expensive those funds are. Um, and, and so evaluating those funds, making the right selection of what funds to, to exchange. So maybe you have an S&P 500 fund or a target date fund that might be a high expense ratio to really evaluate with your advisor and, and pick the right funds and then evaluating those expenses and, and making the decisions proactively going forward to make sure you're selecting the right advisors and, and paying the right fees. Yeah, so kind of to add on to that, um, you know, there are some low hanging fruit ways where if you do calculate your expenses and you're like, wow, this is unreasonable, what can I do that's not gonna disrupt the plan? Um, to Dave's point, the first one to, is to look at the fund lineup and to evaluate 
How expensive are these funds compared to their, their peers? And not only that, but if it's well-performing funds, maybe you just have the wrong share class. Maybe it's a simple switch like that. Um, the other way to lower your cost, obviously, is to talk to your advisor. Now, I will say that there's a big pressure right now in the industry to keep advisor costs low. Um, so I would caution you if you do decide to do a big uh, proposal, you know, and you ask for bids from advisors, I'd caution you against just going the, you know, the cheapest advisor route. Um, an advisor should bring value to the plan. There's a reason why they're there. They, they share in the fiduciary responsibility with you. Um, another thing is don't be scared to negotiate fees. Don't be scared to call up the record keeper and don't be scared to call up your TPA and try to get those fees down. Um, one, one great point that you, meant, uh, that you mentioned is that you know, be careful of low-cost providers. And what I think is very important to mention is that the rule doesn't say you have to engage with the cheapest no. or the most efficient funds or providers. It says those fees have to be reasonable, right. which is very judgmental. So you've got to have you know, good documentation as to what services you're getting, how much education you're getting from your advisors, how diligent are they in their reporting and providing information to you to make those decisions. Those are all critical in determining if your expenses are reasonable or not. It doesn't have to be cheapest, it has to be reasonable. Right. That was a lot of questions. <laughs> in the back. So you, you mentioned benchmarking, but you were also talking about reasonable, what services are provided with that. So how much weight is on the benchmarking as far as, as, far as you might be aware? I mean, is that, if it's a little higher than the benchmark, but there seems to be a whole plethora of services provided, doesn't yeah. that take? It, it's I effectively mean, a starting point. When you look at your benchmark, it's not a, a definition or the rule. It is a starting point to say, okay, in a population of funds that are within our size range, number of participants and volume of assets or, or amount of assets that are in the plan, it's a starting point. Right. Now, they may, you know, there may be a lot, of fun, a lot of plans in that population that are using low-cost providers. Cheaper isn't better. You may really like working with AFCPA's uh, wealth management, and they, they might provide you with the best service, and, and that's what you really care about. Um, and you're willing to pay a premium or best value for what you're getting. I think that's, that's the key, is, and, and documenting that process as to why it's reasonable. Right, so if we can really drill home that point, that fee policy statement, which was the last slide, is really your way of doing that, is to say this is what we're paying, this is why we're paying it, and this is why we feel it's reasonable. If your organization is just facilitating a 403B, mm -hmm. they have, they're just taking a deduction out of your paycheck and giving it to, right. say, Fidelity, is your organization still liable for any of this? Uh, yeah. overpayment of fee or anything like that? that that's a great question. So we, we run into this pretty frequently where we have certain uh, not-for-profit organizations that will have a 403B that they consider to be non-ERISA, uh, meaning it doesn't fall under these requirements of uh, Title I of ERISA, meaning there isn't fiduciary responsibility engaged. You're simply taking funds and withholding them and funding the plan. I will say that that tends to be a slippery slope of making that determination. Usually we advise our clients to consult with an ERISA counsel on that because there is a lot of risk. If you say your plan is non-ERISA and you're sort of hands off on you know, what providers we're making available, what education's going to the client, and you're not active in the administration of the plan, 
that there is risk should, there, should someone determine that it is an ERISA plan that now you are at risk. So I want to out myself uh, here and just say that um, last year when I was here, I met Carmen Grinkus. And Carmen, are you here somewhere? Where are you? Yes, she's my best friend, and so is Kelly. <laughs> and let me tell you why. I, in line, we were talking about 401k plans and what GLAD has. We have a 401k, and I said, you know, I think our costs are a little high. It's maybe, and I, it's just I have bigger fish to fry. I haven't had a chance to look at it. Well, uh, Carmen followed up. Uh, we retained uh, AAF, the Wealth Advisors Group, uh, and they came in, they looked at our plan, they kicked the tires, uh, they made some recommendations and changes, and I can tell you on the slide that she showed about where you fit at, we were probably in the one-fifth percent. I don't like to admit that, but, but uh, I had a feeling. So as a result of that consultation uh, and what the changes they're going to make, they've already made some, our fees uh, have gone, will go down by 43%. Significant. So I say that to say, make sure you network. Uh, it was money very, very well spent. Uh, GLAD's employees are going to be uh, more enriched. I can sleep better at night knowing that we're going to be better fiduciaries. So that's what they do, um, and it was money well spent. So I just wanted to thank them publicly. Thank you. Thank you. Time for one more. One more. Thanks Please. for squeezing me in. Um, <laughs> Curious uh, if you have a sense how much of uh, the fiduciary obligation and, and therefore liability can an organization shed moving from a 321 to a 338? Yeah. And, and are there any particular pitfalls that you would recommend keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so, so you, you certainly, and Kelly can chime in if, if you want, but certainly you can, you can outsource a number of your responsibilities to Another, another advisor, a 338 advisor, which is a, a specific type of fiduciary that has discretion in what fund options and what decisions you make in a plan. You can outsource many of your responsibilities. Ultimately, in the end, regardless of what you do, there will be fiduciary responsibility that ultimately lies with the plan sponsor. Yeah. There's, there's little you can do to say, that wasn't my fault at all. That 338 advisor still has some repercussion and you still can go after them and say you, you were engaged and responsible for providing these services. But that ultimate responsibility is forever gonna lie you know, with the plan sponsor. Yeah, the way I think about it is you share in the fiduciary mm -hmm. responsibility when you do hire somebody, but ultimately it still is yours. You can't ever really get rid of it. And again, there's, diff there's, different, there's different levels with 321 versus 338, and I, I don't want to get into the semantics of it, but there is a certain amount of responsibility you can shed because they are taking ownership of the decisions that are taking place in the plan. It's shared responsibility, but you're never really ultimately removing yourself from having that fiduciary risk. All right, I'm being told we have to get to lunch. So, uh, John? Thank Wait. you. We need a picture. Sure.